0: Uh, You can go ahead and turn to, let's see, where do I want you to go? Um, It's the last chapter in all of the Gospels, except for John. It's the second to last. That's that's the best way to figure it out. Your markers should be there, I would hope, by now. Uh, It is the 16th day of the first Jewish month. Uh, It is Sunday morning on this day. Uh, And we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ has occurred. Now, it apparently happened in the hours of darkness right before it started getting light. Uh, Because this is what we know for a fact, is that the ladies all started on their walking trip to the garden tomb while it was still dark. And their intention seems to have been to arrive right as the sun was going to rise. When they came, the last thing that they were going to be conversing about before they came around the corner and could see the tomb was, Oh, who's going to move that big old stone for us? Because they didn't know anything about a Roman guard. Uh, But when they come around the corner, they see the open tomb. No guards. They're gone. So that means that the guards were scared off probably while it was still very dark. Um, And the angel appears, rolls the stone open, sits up on it. They panic, pass out, come back up again. The angel is not there. They make sure that the... uh, that they understand what's happened in the tomb. So remember, we're using this as our example. On the preparation surface where the body had been laying, the only thing that's left is the empty cocoon. It's just, it's just collapsed. And so the guards know instantly that the, the body's gone. And so they are out of there then. Uh, and eventually they'll go and talk to uh, the Sanhedrin leadership about it. Uh, so the ladies arrive at dawn see the stone rolled away, Mary Magdalene makes an assumption. What's the assumption she makes? Somebody took the body away. Why? Why did they do that? And somebody needs to do something about that. Now, she's not thinking clearly, you know, because there's a lot of big questions here. Why would you unwrap the body and take it away? And then put the clothes back to where it looks like it's ne- they've not been opened up. That's yeah, she is. She's only functioning on the moment. And so she is like, ah, I, that body's been stolen. We've got to go figure out what that is about. And so she runs off to talk to the apostles about it. Specifically Peter, who's the leader of the 12 uh, for all practical purposes. And John, who is the closest relative that she can get her hands on to Jesus. Uh, And uh, while she's on her way, that's when we read that the other ladies are like in the tomb, puzzling about the whole thing. It's like, what? What happened here? And that's when we have the two angels pop in. One apparently is at the head. The other is at the foot of the collapsed clothing. And one of them tells them, you know, you know, don't be afraid. Uh, I know you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's not here. Come, you can look. <laughs> Get up close and personal with this. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. And so they're now looking and thinking about it and uh, they go over in their heads that that is exactly what Jesus has been telling them for the last six months, that this was all going to happen literally, and they hadn't believed it. What's the last thing that the angel tells the ladies before they leave the tomb? Go tell the apostles to go to Galilee like they were told to go. All right? And so they run out of the tomb, and that's Matthew and Mark both tell that part of the story. Um, and then Matthew next, this is Matthew 28, uh, is the one that tells the story about how the guards go to the Sanhedrin in the, in the meantime, and they get promised money if they'll just tell this story. Um, and, uh, of course, we already discussed how crazy that was and how not helpful it would be for them. Um, the next thing in the Matthew account has the apostles heading off to Galilee. So we're not ready for that. That's too quick. There's some foot dragging that still goes on here. Uh, So go to Luke 24, which was also telling this part of the story. And uh, it says in Luke 24, 6... Uh, that remember how he spoke to you while you were still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man will, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, third day rise again. They remembered his words. They returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and uh, all the rest. Uh, now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna. Anybody know who Joanna is? Wife of Huza Herod's steward. This is King Herod, or Tetrarch Herod is his technical title, of Galilee and Perea. And so I am convinced, you don't have to be, this is my opinion, I am convinced that huza was probably the guy that came from Capernaum Uh, to see Jesus at uh, Cana of Galilee to ask him to come down and heal his child. And uh, Jesus does it from a distance because that man is described as a king's man. And so I believe that that miraculous healing at a distance led to Joanna becoming one of the ladies that followed Jesus all over the place and supported his ministry. Uh, and uh, Luke chapter 8 actually has the list that included her in it. Let me read it to you, Luke 8, starting at verse number 1. Soon afterwards he began going from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. So that's the category. These are people that have benefited from Jesus' ministry. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So that tells us about her life. She must have been in the occult. So much so that she didn't just have one spirit that she was connected to, or two, or three, or four. She had seven of them that she was running some sort of relationship with, and then realized this was not good, and tried to get out of it, and it was a mess, And so Jesus comes in as that authoritative third party and gets her clear of that. And so that's why she devoted the rest of her life to serving him. And so we're going to be following up with her story in just a moment. And Joanna, the wife of Huzza, Herod's steward, and then Susanna. We know nothing about Susanna, so probably either demonic possession in her or her family life uh, or some sort of sickness, Uh, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So these ladies, at least several of them, must have been fairly well-to-do. And so they were helping pay the bills as uh, Jesus and the apostles were traveling all over the place. They were probably lending... uh, specific material support as well, like they may have been cooking meals. They may have been cleaning. They may have been uh, running errands and and anything else that might be needed in a group traveling around like that. And so now they have followed Jesus all the way to Jerusalem for this Passover, um, and they've been privy to these predictions uh, that he would... Um, Uh, die and then be resurrected from the dead. Uh, Now, uh, the Matthew account also told us that Jesus appeared to the ladies and uh, himself told them, don't be afraid, Uh, go tell the apostles that I'm going to meet them in Galilee. So that's where we finished up last week. We are ready now for the rest of the John story in John chapter 20. Now this follows specifically Mary of Magdala. Magdala is a, um, it is a really significant fishing city up on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it um, was big enough, it had more than one um, synagogue. They've been doing all sorts of archaeological digging around there. Uh, It's a very interesting place to go. Uh, But she is following Jesus and very dedicated to him. So you already know she made the assumption the body's been stolen. Peter and John need to do something about that. So John 20. She came, she ran to Simon Peter, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. Uh, So this is our tomb representation here. This is actually the garden tomb uh, with a stone that I put in uh, with manipulation. Uh, This is our map that we've been using for the area. Remember it? Uh, We've got Jerusalem taking up most of that left-hand side. You see the black wall around it. You see the representation of the Temple Mount in the upper right-hand part of that uh, Jerusalem area. Uh, In the upper left, that circle represents where the Garden Tomb and uh, Gordon's Calvary are located. Uh, That's the one that I think is the authentic one. So that's where the open tomb is. The right lower circle, that's Bethany. We know that Jesus and his traveling companions were spending each night there during Passover week, during the week leading up to Passover. So it's possible that's where the ladies were when they got up in the morning to go to the tomb. That's about mm, two miles to go to the tomb. Wouldn't take you, you know, 40 minutes maybe to do the walking. Um, the lower right circle, that's the rich part of town and the likely location of the upper room, which is where we know the apostles are hiding out. So the ladies are going to go from the garden tomb area through town and up to Snob Hill, that's what we would call it today, uh, and go to the upper room to find the apostles. Now there's a lot of different routes you can take to get there. Uh, So while the ladies who have already been told by the angels about the resurrection and been told by Jesus about getting to Galilee, they don't meet Peter and John coming to the tomb. We know that they're going opposite directions. Uh, Somehow, Peter and John take a different route than you expect. Now, you understand the city of Jerusalem during this time. It is narrow pedestrian streets and buildings on both sides And so there's lots of little places you could go through, and some people know different shortcuts, right? And so Peter and John take off running. It's about three-quarters to almost a mile that they're going to go. So they're on their way, uh, and Mary, who had run to them, is now turning around, and she's on her way back, and she's going to be a lot slower than they were. Okay, now, the rest of the story here. Verse number four. The two were running together. So they start out, keeping pace. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. So, John, who by tradition is the youngest of the apostles, um, it would appear that. Most of the apostles would have been right around the same age as Jesus. He is in his later 30s when this is all occurring. So more than likely, the majority of the apostles are in their later 30s, maybe a few of them in their younger 40s. But the tradition, which I think has some good reason to believe it, is that John is going to be in his 20s, his later 20s at this time. So that just by itself tells you you should expect him to get to the tomb first. If you've got a, tw- a 25, 26-year-old racing against a 38-year-old, which one's going to win? Yeah, right. That's, that's pretty simple, unless you're talking about conditioned athletes. Uh, so John gets there, but he doesn't go in. It says, verse 5, stooping... And looking in, which is exactly what you have to do. Uh, Dan, you've been through this door with me. How, how tall would you say that door is? Would you say four and a half? Five four five, four and a half? It's not, it's not more than five feet. Yeah, it's, it's definitely less than five feet. You have to do this to go through it. You go up and over the lip where the, the, um, uh, the trough is for the locking mechanism. And then there's a step down on the inside. And then immediately to your right is the two prep boxes, or the two uh, burial boxes with the prep tops. They're not there anymore, the prep tops are gone. And then the little area in between them. Uh, And then over to the left is the, it's called the mourning area. It's where the family and others gather uh, to, to grieve. Uh, inside the tomb itself. So when you stop at the edge of this tomb and you stoop over, you immediately can see the top of the prep area with no problem, none. And so what does he see? It says that he saw the linen wrappings lying there. That's the way that we're describing the cocoon that's collapsed. It was the long cloth Folded over the top of the head, and then it's kind of folded up on the edges, and then loosely at this point, uh, uh, kept together by a, a longer cloth uh, going around the length of the body. Uh, so he's seeing the collapsed cocoon. That's what he's describing. But he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came. So here he comes running as well. You got to picture them, right? And Peter does the thing that we all expect Peter to do, right? He immediately entered the tomb. He's like, boom, right through the door. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. So he can see the collapsed cocoon. But Peter sees something else, which John takes note of, and writes down. Verse 7. He also saw the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, there's a little bit of speculation we have to do here because we're not altogether certain. It is thought that this, is, that this um, separate sudarium sundarion uh, it's, it's the Greek word for this face cloth. Uh, it could be where you take a piece of cloth and kind of spin it together and wrap it and keep the chin shut, right? Because when a body dies, <laughs> mouth drops open, and that's very not helpful to the people around that love them. Uh, and uh, even today, our morticians make sure that that is secured. Uh, More likely, though, is the other thing. They just simply take a piece of cloth and lay it over the face so that you're not looking at the person's face while you're doing all the preparations for the body. And when you close the cloth, that cloth is left in place. So that's why John notes this. This is weird. Peter saw, John didn't see it to begin with, so I'm guessing that it's on the other prep platform, on the other side, which you can't see the corner, the top head area, uh, when you're just standing outside the tomb peeking in. You can see the far prep area, nice and clear, but the one that's just inside the door, you can't. And so that's probably on the other prep area just laying there. Now, why is that so weird? Why is it outside the cocoon? Yeah, the rolling up is the other weird thing. Uh, that's why you know some people think it might be that chin strap thing, which you know you just coil that there. But if it's the other flat piece of cloth, then apparently it's been rolled up in some sort of tube and put off to the side. Yeah, wrapped together. The word is coiled, uh, and so either one of those you can kind of see. It's off to the side. Ultimately, we don't know which of the two for sure, and we don't know why it was coiled up. All we know for a fact is that it shouldn't have been there. If the body has been just taken out, why did they close the cocoon back up like the body hadn't been removed? Well, you know, if they just stole the body, why didn't they take the whole wrapping and everything with them? that uh, laid somewhere else. Does that affect the story of Yeah, there are some people who think that that is somehow related to the image on the cloth. Uh, and um, we don't know. We don't know how all that works together. There's tons of relics out there that people claim. And, uh, yeah, most of them, the vast majority, I'm sure, are not tied in with any of the stories. They're more touristy con jobs. Um, But with this, there's too many questions. And that's why John says this, verse 8. So the other disciple, so that's himself he's talking about, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, he saw, saw what? The whole arrangement. He saw the collapsed cocoon. He saw the other face cloth rolled up by itself where it shouldn't be. Why? Why would it be there? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and it says, and he believed. So John is testifying, this is where I started believing in the resurrection. This is where I started thinking that Jesus must have resurrected bodily from the tomb. That's the only thing that made sense for all the stuff that he was seeing. Uh, The body somehow disappeared from inside the wrappings, without the wrappings being disturbed, other than collapsing. And the body apparently brought the face cloth out with it and then took the face cloth off and put it off to the side. So you can almost picture Jesus. Can we do a science fiction effect? Transporting out and then he, picks, he comes into existence again in a standing up position, takes the face cloth off, rolls it up, puts it there. And then just disappears because his body is already gone when the stone is rolled open, right? So all of that happened with his body disappearing while the, the guard is right outside. They didn't know about that until the earthquake occurred when the angel came and rolled the stone open, but Jesus was already gone at that point because the Jesus does not need a stone to be rolled out of the way for him to get out of the tomb. He walks through walls. He just transports from one location to another with no problem whatsoever. Yeah, John. This is the point for John, the resurrection. Why did go he was in Oh, why did not John immediately go to Galilee? Because it's a group project. And unfortunately, we got one member of the group that's be in a pain about the assignment. Uh, and who is that? Thomas. Uh, Thomas is going to be the one that keeps them from obeying the assignment until a week after it had been given. All right, so, um, yeah, go ahead, sir. What bothers you? Yeah, we don't know. Maybe it's just part of setting the story for their um, their amazement. Okay. Okay, good question. Uh, what if it just happened by normal means? Why would John mention it? He was, yeah. John was there with all those ladies whenever Jesus' body was put in the tomb. So he, this is one of the reasons why this is annotated as something shocking to him, is that he knows for a fact that that face cloth was inside the cocoon because he watched Jesus' body with the face cover in place be closed up. And so that's why he notes it. He's like, I don't understand how it happened. This is too weird. But this is the way it was. And this is what got me to thinking that Jesus must have resurrected from the dead. So, in science fiction decides like, what if Jesus just sat up, took the plank, took the shroud, put it down, got up, pulled the thing back up. So, he, he remade his bed. He did. <laughs> And he's a good Jewish boy. Um, Yeah. Uh, Except for the fact that none of these guys think that's what happened. They are shocked because what looks like has happened is that the grave clothes have just collapsed in place, that the body is gone. And that's why they're all so surprised. Because no natural explanation makes any sense whatsoever. None of it. At what point did they find out that there was a guard started? Uh, They don't hear about the guards until later, uh, when the story starts going around. That there had been a detail there, and that supposedly... Now, think about this, being one of the apostles, somebody comes up, hey, there's a story going around that you guys stole the body. They're like, what? Yeah, there was a Roman detail out there. I didn't know anything about that, and there is no way in the world I'd take on a Roman detail. I mean, even 12 guys taking on 16 soldiers would be an unwise choice. Uh, So they hear about it later. They don't know about it uh, at the moment. All right, so verse number nine, for as yet, here's a confession for you, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So that's him. He's writing this story 30 uh, 30 years later. He says, you know, at that exact moment, when I started thinking that the resurrection must have literally taken place, I have to confess, I didn't understand the concept of resurrection in that fashion. This is John. He says, me, Peter, the other guys, we didn't get it. It didn't matter how many times he told us. We did not understand it that way didn't get it. Think about if I had been there and watching Jesus do a miracle after miracle. Uh huh. Two years maybe. Three years three total years these guys have been with him. Yeah, it is hard for us to put ourselves in the place of them because we have already accepted their testimonies and put our faith in their testimonies. But even imagining being there, what would we have done? Yeah, How would we have reacted? Would we have thought like them? He must be talking metaphorically. Because keep in mind, they had been taught their entire lives, that when the Messiah came, it was all over with. They didn't didn't know anything about this idea of the Messiah dying. That didn't make any sense to them. The the, uh, Daniel 9 passage that talks about the Messiah being cut off, they didn't understand it in that sense. They apparently believed it was going to be some sort of conflict, and then he was going to win, and it would be all over with. This idea of the Messiah dying... And necessitating him coming back to life, that don't make sense. There's one time when Jesus has been teaching about, apparently, to the people about the idea of death and resurrection, Uh, they say, But we've always heard that when the Messiah comes, he'll remain into eternity. See, that was their standard belief system. So this is hard. For them to get over the hump. Really. Uh, It's really hard for Mary Magdalene. Who is in the next part of the story here. Uh, So verse 10. The disciples went away again to their own homes. Now that's kind of clumsy English to say they went back to where they were staying. It's not that they went back to Galilee. They went back to the upper room. That's where they're hanging out. And. What would they have told the others that were hanging out there? What they saw. Yeah, the body is definitely missing. The ladies are right about that. We didn't see any angels. We didn't see him. We actually have the testimony of the two guys that were there when the apostles got back from the tomb and who were apparently there when the ladies came and told their stories. And you know how they characterize it? They said, we were amazed by the women who came to us telling us stories of angels and seeing the Lord, and two of our number went out there and checked it out, but they came back saying that they hadn't seen any of that stuff. And so, another of the gospels says that they thought that the women were being hysterical. You guys understand hysterical, right? I've told you this before. The etymology of the word hysterical means being crazy like a woman. Okay? It, it's where we get our word uterus, It's the idea, if you're a woman, you believe crazy things. It's a cultural prejudice. And so the two guys on the road to Emmaus later said, what they, what they told us seemed to us like nonsense. It didn't make any sense. So the first people who preached the gospel were ladies. And the first people who heard the gospel were the apostles. And did they believe it? No. That's the irony of the whole story, isn't it? Yeah, John is the only one, uh, but he's only at the very beginning of that. And he's one 112th t- the apostles. <laughs> All right, verse number 11. So Mary arrives back at the open tomb. Uh, we can estimate that she got there probably 20 or so minutes after Peter and John got there, maybe 15, 20 minutes, while they're still kind of wrapping up their disbelief or beginning of belief. And uh, so they're like out of there. And she's left by herself, crying at the tomb. So Peter and John are on their, on their way back, saw nothing, except for the grave clothes that we already described. Verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. So she's not inside, she's outside. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. So she's in the same spot again. She's right here at the threshold, crying against this. It's a cliff face that's been dug into, right? So she's by this cliff face. She's crying and crying, and she's stooping over, and she's looking in there, and she can see the prep top. She can see the collapsed clothes, and she's just terribly upset. And then she suddenly sees something that the ladies have already seen, and she sees something which the gentlemen that were just in there a few minutes ago didn't see. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Now, that has to have been a little bit weird for her to see. But she doesn't assume supernatural. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. So apparently she just assumes there are a couple of people just in there. I don't know. Maybe they were gawkers. She doesn't think they're angels. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Again, we can speculate a little bit about this, and I try to use my imagination based on experience, right? When you're standing somewhere and you're focused on something in front of you, have you ever once in a while suddenly either felt there was someone behind you, maybe you heard a noise, or you caught motion in your peripheral vision, right? So what do you do? You turn around. So that's what she's doing. She is at the tomb door crying. The angels have just said, why are you weeping? And she's like, they've taken the body away, and I don't know where they put it. And then she catches something for her attention behind her, and it says that um, she saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So now we come back again to this idea that I threw out in front of you last week, that Jesus' resurrection body apparently looks different enough from his pre-crucifixion body that you don't immediately recognize him as Jesus. Remember I took you to the book of Revelation with the white beard, white hair? That's probably who he saw, who she saw behind her. She turns around, she sees this figure, not Jesus in her head, because it doesn't look like Jesus from, you know, three days earlier. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now that by itself is not enough to get her attention. Supposing him to be the gardener. So this is a working garden. It is Sunday morning. And even though it's a holiday week, a gardener might come in and check on everything in here. And so she assumes that this is the guy that takes care of the place, which hopefully he would know what happened. So uh, supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I'll take him away. See, if there was a problem with him being in this tomb, if that's why you moved him, Just tell me, and I will help make the arrangements to get his body someplace else. So that's what she's just offered. So is she believing in a resurrection yet? No, she's believing in a funeral, because that's what she came here for. Uh, Jesus then said to her, Miriam. Now that's Hebrew Aramaic. Uh, Her name, Mary, in our English is equivalent to Miriam. Miriam. The moment he spoke her name, that's when she realized who he was. Now we have in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, the the sheep know their shepherd's voice. right?" And he calls them by name. And so there's something happening here the moment he speaks her name, which he's probably done many, many times, recognition clicks, even though the visual side of him does not match. Jesus said to her, Mirim. She turned and she then said to him in Hebrew/slash Aramaic, Rabuni, which John tells some of his readers who are not aware. Uh, This is the way that Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking people say, my teacher. Um, It's literally my great one. That's literally what it means. Uh, But it's used as a formal uh, and uh, uh, affectionate address for your teacher or your master. And uh, Jesus then said to her, stop clinging to me. Now, this gets confusing when you match it to the other story of the ladies. Now, we are told in that story that they did what to his feet? Got down and grabbed a hold of his feet, and they were worshiping him. Now, did Jesus say, knock it off, quit dragging on me? No. So... Why is he saying it here? Read a little bit more. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So some people have tried to suggest that somehow Jesus had not yet gone to the Father that morning, which there is something about that in symbolism, uh, because this is First Fruits Day. And the high priest uh, offered first fruits on this morning uh, to God as a, uh, uh, a symbol of the coming harvest. And so on this day, Jesus will offer to the Father the first fruits of all the dead people whose faith has now come to the climax of salvation and they will be ushered into the father's presence because their atonement has now been paid in full and so jesus will take people into the father's presence today all of the saints of the past so some people look at this and go he wants her to quit contaminating him because he's going to go into the father's presence and so my immediate question is what That's right. Why didn't he let the other ladies do anything without getting after them? So I reject that theory. Instead, I think about the fact that uh, we use this idea of clinging metaphorically as well. Right? Have you ever talked about someone being so clingy? They're so clingy. And you, you say to people, don't be so clingy. What do you mean by that? Quit touching me? Is that what you mean? Yeah, don't, don't keep hanging on to me all the time. I think that's exactly where Jesus is going with this. That's right. Mary, you have got to get used to the idea, I'm not going to be here. I still have to go back to the Father. Permanently. Until the, you know, second coming. You need to suck it up a little bit here, young lady. You can't keep holding on to me so tight. Don't be so clingy. So I'm going to give you a job. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Uh, Now, again we know that the literal ascension happens in 40 days. Jesus will leave planet Earth from uh, the Mount of Olives and he won't come back to the Mount of Olives until his second coming. So that's the more permanent ascension. But there is the symbolism of the day of the Feast of First Fruits where he will definitely present to the Father All of the saints of old whose sins are now forgiven. This is why in the Old Testament period, if you died as a believer, you did not go into the presence of God. You went into the presence of other believers that were dead. We talk about it being the bosom of Abraham. But in the New Testament, we have Paul and others giving the testimony to be absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. The dividing line is the death and resurrection of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the atonement was promised but not yet realized. In the New Testament, it was realized. The debt had been paid. And so the people can go into the presence. Old Testament, not yet. It's only promised, not completely fulfilled. Um. I'm going to leave you with that between now and next week, okay? Because that might be something you want to come back and talk about a little bit more. Because that, it, some people find that very confusing, this whole idea of the state of the dead, Old Testament versus New Testament, and how Jesus affected the change. Any real quick question or comment? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Gospels. And we thank you for the glorious resurrection of Jesus after his complete and total atonement for sin. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to believe and to live in that resurrection, in that atonement. And that we will do our best to live such good lives of righteousness and holiness and and the fruit of the Spirit in front of the people of this world that they'll want to know about Jesus. It's in his name we ask for help as we go into our worship time. Amen.